0: Good morning. Um, As we uh, begin, let me just remind you of where we've been. Uh, We've spent the better half of the last year walking through Revelation, the book of Revelation. And while it was uh, a a fun journey, it was a long journey, and uh, I'm glad to uh, move on into something new. And so as we were talking about what would be the best uh, route to go, I thought that it would be very good to actually walk through uh, one of our Gospels. Now, during Wednesday nights, we've been walking through the Gospel of Matthew. And we just finished this last Wednesday, and so next Wednesday we're going to be starting the book of Isaiah. And so I thought, you know, with, with walking through Matthew, I thought that it would be appropriate that on Sunday morning that we take a time to spend through Mark. And oftentimes when pastors are asked, you know, what book of the Bible do you give to the to a new Christian to read? Uh, or or you give to an unbeliever to read to kind of understand the gospel and to understand, you know, the, the person of Christ. Uh, oftentimes individuals will give them the book of John. They'll have them read the book of John, which is a perfectly fine book. It's a great book. It's one of my favorite in all scripture. Uh, however, uh, often... Mark is the gospel that many pastors will give to new Christians and to unbelievers. And one of the reasons is because it's shorter. It's the shortest of all the gospels, but it's also to the point. It's to the point. It doesn't beat around the bush. Uh, it it, it kind of gets where it needs to go, and it gets there quickly. And so, uh, and, and it gets there very, it, when I say it gets there quickly, what I mean is it gets there quickly in the sense that, you know, Matt, Mark uses the word immediately a lot, in that text, and we'll talk about that. But also, he starts off in the very beginning of the book uh, with the words of Christ, basically saying why Christ is here, his purpose, and what we how we need to respond. And so that's why Mark is a very uh, solid book to begin with. And I want to begin with a, with a verse this morning, which I consider to be sort of the focal verse of the entire book. I believe the entire book centers on this verse, and it's Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. And it says, Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, we're going to talk about why I think that is the focal verse in this sermon. Now, this sermon is a different type of sermon than I've ever preached here in the last five or five plus years. And it's because we're going to walk through as a synopsis of Mark. We're not going to go through chapter one today. We're going to actually do a synopsis of the entire book in a way uh, just to kind of get us prepared so it will be a little little more brief. And, uh, and again, when I say that, you ought to be very frightened when I say that, okay, because this could be an hour and a half sermon if I really get into it. Um, but um, it should be a little bit more brief, but it will also set the stage for the weeks to come. So I'm going to open this in prayer, and then we're going to begin with an introduction. Would you join me? Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to read from your word, to study your word, and for me to preach from your word, Lord. I am thankful that I get the opportunity to preach uh, this wonderful book. And Lord, I pray that you would bless our time in Mark. Uh, you blessed our time as we, that we spent in Revelation, and I pray that you would continue to bless us as we walk through the gospel of Mark. And Father, I pray that we would grow in knowledge and we'd grow in spirit and faith, Lord, and that we would grow uh, just as, as, as the church uh, w- working side by side uh, in the kingdom of God in order to make disciples of each and every one that we come across, Lord. So bless this time that we have. Bless us today. And um, we love you, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So as way of an introduction, let me just say this. Other than getting to spend time with a historical figure, actually speaking to them and observing their facial expressions and their peculiar quirks, the best way to learn about that said person is probably to read a biography of that individual okay? That's probably the best way to learn. Now, you know, you could talk to, to, to people who knew the individual to kind of get a grasp, but really, if you're talking about a historical person, a celebrity, maybe a former president uh, or something like that, the best way to learn about that person is a biography. Now, you might say, what about an autobiography? Wouldn't that be the best way? and and it might be it might be it, at the very least you'll you'll get the pers- that that person's perception of themselves but i would argue that it's honestly not the best way to get the uh, get the grasp of a historical individual now when i talk about a historical individual i'm really talking about historical figures i'm talking about individuals who played prominent roles in history and the reason i say that a biography is actually better is because when a person writes an autobiography it's always skewed, and the, and the nature of an autobiography is always written in their lifetime, right? Because they're still alive. So they do not know their impact on history. So if you read, for instance, an autobiography of Barack Obama or Donald Trump or somebody like that, and you read their autobiography they are going to give you their side of what history looks like right and their perception which could be helpful but the truth is is that the biographies we honestly learn the most about that historical person and their place in history is actually reading those that are down the line from other individuals all right who've done the research who've who've had that experience of going through all the texts so for instance Abraham Lincoln one of the first biographies of Abraham Lincoln was actually written in 1860. It wasn't a book as as you may know. It was, it was more of like a pamphlet, but but it was about Abraham Lincoln, which probably had some very helpful information about that president. However, it did not have the impact, the historical impact that Abraham Lincoln had on our history and on our country. And in fact you may know this, that Abraham Lincoln was not a very well-liked president. He was assassinated, folks, all right? Shot right in the head, okay? He was not very well-liked in his day, all right? There were many people that had a lot against Uh, Abraham Lincoln, and even his supporters could never have understood the great impact that he would have on history. But now that we read historical accounts and we have history in our rearview mirror, we now know the impact that Abraham Lincoln had on uh, our country. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are all likely eyewitness testimonies of Jesus Christ and biographies based on eyewitness. So these biographies were written very near to the time of Christ, not on, not on the day that he's actually working. These aren't being transcribed as, as Jesus is going through his ministry. I mean, honestly, the disciples didn't have time for that. They were busy paying attention to Jesus, okay? But 30, 40 years later, some even 50 or 60 years later, these disciples started writing down, all right, as a testimony of what they saw and heard from Christ and those around him as as a way that future generations would know the Son of God, right? And so they knew, even in that short period of time, the historical impact that this man named Jesus would have, and that's what the Gospels are. They are biographies, but they are more than biographies, they are biographies that change lives. Now, I've read many biographies in my day. I've written, I've read biographies about George Whitfield, about. Uh, 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 John, uh, John, Jonathan Edwards, John Piper. I've read biographies about Abraham Lincoln. And I will tell you, while they were intriguing, they were interesting, and they edified me, they did not change my life. But the gospels of Jesus Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they have the power to not just give us knowledge, but to make us new, to change our lives. And so that's what we're embarking on over the next few weeks. Each gospel has an aim, a purpose, and as well as a specific audience. And today we're going to begin with the gospel according to Mark. Now let me just give you a little bit of a, of a history, okay? So for those of you who, who like a little bit of history, I'm going I'm to go into that a little bit today. The author, who is this Mark? Well, his name is John Mark. That's his full name, all right? And it's largely agreed upon that this, that this second book of the New Testament was written by this individual, John Mark, and that he was a contemporary of Jesus and a close companion of both Peter and John. And so many individuals believe that he was an eyewitness to Jesus, okay? But that the majority of what we have in the gospel of Mark is actually Mark, John Mark, transcribing what Peter has told him. He was very close to Peter. All right? And so we see that in the book of Acts. We see that actually in 1 Peter. In fact, Peter calls John Mark his son. And so it is very likely that Peter says, let me tell you everything about what I saw and what I experienced. John, you might say, well, why does he have two names? John is the author's Jewish name, and Mark is his Roman designation, similar to Simon Peter. And it is widely believed that, like I said, much of the Gospel of Mark was written with the oral history of Peter in mind. Now, when was it written? It is believed by many commentators, by many researchers, that the Gospel of Mark was one of the very first New Testament books written. In fact, some say that it was the very first New Testament book written. Likely, that's not true, Likely, uh, either Ephesians or First and Second Thessalonians were, were written before it. But it was written very early. It was the first of the Gospels written. And based on both external and internal sources, it's believed that Mark was written around 65 A.D. So before the destruction of the temple, okay, uh, but around the 60s, an earlier date has been proposed, like in the 50s. So just like you know, maybe 15 or 20 years after the death of Christ. But it's likely based on especially the suffering that we that we see in Mark. This this depiction of Christ as the suffering servant. That it is likely that it was written more in the 60s. And the reason we know that is because in the 60s, er, 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 before the 60s. We had two major emperors that were in Rome that were very conscientious about their uh, persecution of Christians. The first was Caligula, all right? And he was a a very perverse, perverted narcissist. In fact, there is even a movie made after that I cannot recommend to anybody because it's completely perverse. All right, I've never seen it, I've just read about it, and it's horrible. All right. But this emperor was a perverted narcissist and he built statues of himself in order for all the people around to worship. And if they didn't, then they would be persecuted. And the second, of course, is Nero. And many of you all have heard that that name. Nero was murdered uh, right before the fall of the temple in 70. So it was about 68 or so uh, AD, I believe. And so during that time, uh, it, is, it is demonstrated that Nero was a tremendous persecutor of Christians, murdered many, and in horrible, horrible ways. And so based on the language uh, of this urgency, uh, you know, with this suffering going on, the, the word immediately, if you look through the Gospel of Mark you just underline it, the word immediately is used over 40 times, Jesus immediately did this. The disciples immediately, there's an urgency to the Bible. And the reason is, is because all these Christians who were suffering, all right, who are experiencing this suffering, they want to know, is there going to be an end to this persecution? And so Mark is saying, there is, there is an end. And by the way, this Jesus that I am testifying to, this Jesus is not someone who is unaware of your struggles, because he, in fact, is the suffering servant. Now, what is the theme of Mark? Based on all the evidence, it appears that Mark is wanting to tell his his readers that Christ, the Son of Man... The suffering servant is your great rescuer. He is your great redeemer. If you have been looking for rescue in any other place, you will not find it. The only place that you will find your rescue is in Christ Jesus. That is it. And that is still a testimony that we need today. It it breaks my heart. How many individuals are looking for satisfaction who are looking for a reprieve from the pain of this life in other means, whether it be in a career or in family, a job, education, or more nefarious, drugs, alcohol, sex, all those sorts of things. So many people in our world are looking for rescue, looking for a reprieve from this life in all these other ways, and they will not provide it. You know very good and well what I mean. You think that you're going to find a rescue from your pain or your depression or your sadness through a significant other. Like, if I, man, if I can just fall in love with that one special individual, it's just going to change my life and everything will. Folks, people will fail you people will fail you. I've said this once and I will say it again and again. I love my wife dearly. There's no one on this planet that I love more than my wife. And I will tell you this, I will fail her. I will fail her at times. And she will fail Me, far fewer times than I will fail her, but it will happen. See how I did that? All right. We can still ride home and all smile. Okay? So that it's going, it's going to happen because we're human and we're broken. And so if you are looking for someone else to rescue you, that's not the person to look to. If you're looking for a job that's going to bring you happiness, it's not. If I could only get that new raise, if I could only get that promotion, if I could only get, you know, this or that. How many of us said, man, I've got all these bills. If I could just get that raise, I would wipe out all these bills. You know what happens? More bills. That's just what happens, right? It's amazing. Promotion after promotion, raise after raise, bill after bill. It just keeps lining up because money don't save you. They won't. Job won't save you. Education won't save you. Now, those are good things, folks, wonderful things. But they will not rescue you from the sin that you are buried in. Only Christ can do that. Some commentators believe or divide this gospel into two distinct parts, while others divide the gospel into five to eight parts. Now, for our purposes, I'm going to use William Lane's outline in his commentary, the Gospel of Mark, which is part of the new international commentary on the New Testament series. That's a lot of words, but I want to let you know that I'm not making this up, okay? Somebody else came up with this outline, but I've got, it's funny, I thought I only had one commentary to Mark. I was like, oh man, I'm going to need to buy some more commentaries. And then I like looked through my bookshelf and bam, 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 bam. I got like eight commentaries stacked up. I'm glad I didn't buy a new one because we would not have had a very good ride home if that had happened. So. I'm going to go with, with Lane's uh, breakdown, his summary. and So let me show, you, show this to you. It's on the screen here. And so this is sort of the structure of Mark. It begins with a prologue right here in the first few verses. And then it dives into the initial phase of, of Jesus' ministry in the Galilee. Then there are later phases that are, that are somewhat different than what Jesus does in, there in the Galilee. Then he moves on from the Galilee. He then journeys to Jerusalem. He spends his last days in Jerusalem ministering. And then we get into the passion narrative. And if you're not familiar with that, the passion is the crucifixion. So when Mel Gibson made his movie, The Passion of the Christ, there were a lot of people who were not churchy folks that didn't understand that. They were thought this was going to be some sort of love story. You know what's funny? It really was it really was. But passion in this sense means suffering. So it's the suffering of Christ and then it ties into the resurrection. So we're going to break it down into eight parts. We're not going to go verse by verse. We're not going to go verse by verse. So I'm going to do my best to try to give you some homework every week. All right. So hopefully you all are people that do homework. All right. (laughs) Malachi's like, I love homework. All right. So, I will be giving that to you so you can read ahead so we'll all be well versed. Now, throughout the gospel, there are many turns and pauses, many leaps that are made, but Mark is a very action packed book. And in fact, if you were going to make it into a movie, it would not be the notebook, okay? It would be gone in 60 seconds, all right? That's what it would be, all right? Because let's just be very clear no book of the Bible should ever be related to that horrible, awful movie, the notebook. Okay. Very good. All right. And I, hopefully all the men agree and all the women are like, that's detestable. All right. The notebook is a wonderful piece of literature and movie making and um, whatever. Okay. So throughout this book, we have tons of this kind of action-packed uh, sequences, but throughout the text, there is this one verse that stands out above the rest. And I've already read that, but I want to remind you, it's this. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. That verse, I contend, is the centerpiece to the entire gospel. Everything revolves around that. And Mark puts that in the very beginning so that we have that in the back of our mind as we're walking through. This is why Christ came, to proclaim and fulfill the gospel of God. Of God. Now I find that language funny because typically when we talk about the gospel we say the Gospel of Jesus Christ, which is completely appropriate to say that because the gospel is about Jesus and what He accomplishes. but we have to remember that it was the Father who sends Christ to rescue us. Now I want to briefly break down this verse into three parts so that we can reflect on this passage as we walk through Mark. So real quick, I'm going to break this down into three parts. Immediately, I'm going to do that, okay, in the theme of Mark. The first is this, the proclamation of the gospel. The gospel of God, as Mark states it, concerns the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. That's what the gospel is. It is the good news of Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul states the gospel in a very explicit text in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. If anybody ever asks you what is the gospel from scripture, point them to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 3 and 4. It is the most explicit detail of what the gospel is. Now there are other passages in the Bible that exposit that text more fully, but if you want to know like an elevator presentation of what the gospel is, that's it. Okay? It's that it's that verse. Jesus states at the outset of his ministry, the purpose of his incarnation is to deliver the good news. Why was Jesus made into the flesh, as the, as the uh, disciple John would say? It was to proclaim the gospel. It was to deliver the good news. Jesus did not just die a substitutionary death, receive burial, and then conquer the grave. He also proclaimed that which he lived. The bad news is that you all are all dead in your sin. The good news is that you do not have to stay dead. The kingdom has arrived with a new mandate, so repent of your sins and believe. Throughout this gospel, we are going to see this theme of gospel proclamation being developed as a major player in the ministry of Jesus and His disciples. That's what we're going to see. Everything that occurs in the gospel points to this proclamation of the gospel that people would know and understand the good news of Jesus Christ. The second part of that verse that I want to focus in on is the kingdom of God. I mean, he says here, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. We are in a different point in history. What I mean, this statement, the time is fulfilled, okay, What that means is, I have arrived. I have arrived. The time is fulfilled. Everything that the prophets have been preaching and prophesying has arrived in me, in Jesus. Therefore, the kingdom of God has now arrived. There is an urgency in the words and the life of Jesus, as well as in this gospel. And the urgency is derived from the fact that, that the kingdom of God has now been inaugurated; it is now here. Okay, so every folks, you remember you remember all the prophets, you remember all that they were preaching, you remember Isaiah, you remember Daniel, you remember everything that Moses wrote in the first five books, right in the Torah, all those minor prophets, everything that David was living towards was the arrival of this kingdom, and it is now present with us in the life of Christ. It has been inaugurated with the incarnation and the ministry of the Son of God. Now, what does that mean? It means this. Now, this is very important. I need you to listen to me here. What does it mean that the kingdom of God has arrived? It means that everything that we once knew has now been turned on its head. Everything. Everything. Those who thought the law was king will now have to submit to grace. The unlovable must be loved. The dirty will now be clean. The prideful will be humbled. And the least will be made to be the greatest. That is the kingdom of God. And that is not what our world exposes or preaches or testifies to. This is what I understand when I hear the phrase that we are in the world but not of the world. We live in a world that is basically trying to get us to devour ourselves with greed and pride and narcissism and all the glories of the flesh. Or I should say the sin of the flesh. We live in a world that has completely different standards than our own. This is why I have told you over and over again that it is okay, and in fact, not just okay, but it is a good thing for you and I to look weird to the world. We should look strange to the world. The other day when I was at work, I made a comment. I don't even remember what it was, but it was some sort of comment Um, about Christ and it was basically uh, it was basically surmised I could summarize it by saying this that uh, that God is sovereign over all things it's going to be okay and I got this kind of like crooked eye like who is this guy that's very strange language right that's very strange dude right there and now we have to work with him all right but that's just I mean, if I say that to you all, that's not a weird thing for me to say at all, right? God is in control. God is in control. Folks, I just so you I mean, everybody's flipping out about Russia and Ukraine. And, you know, it's important that we focus on that. But let me just be very clear. God is in control of that situation. Nothing is going to happen outside of the providence of God over in Ukraine. What happens was ordained by God. That doesn't eliminate human responsibility, but it does mean that God is in control. And I'm just going to tell you, that's a weird thing for people. That's a strange thing. You might think, what about all those bad things? God is in control of that. And you might say, well, then if He's in control, I don't want Him in control. You don't want to live in a world where God's not in control. You don't want to live in a world like that. Because however out of control you think the world is right now, does not compare to the world and what it would look like if God removes his hand. You may think that God doesn't have a plan. God does have a plan. Every one of his promises will come true. The kingdom of God represents a paradigmatical shift from the way many had been living. What does that mean? It means it's shifting paradigms. And I wanted to use that word because it made me sound really smart just now. Let's let's jump into the third point, okay? Jesus says this, repent and believe. Repent and believe. And that's where we're going to finish our message this morning. There is a call by Christ to respond to the gospel. Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand. I'm proclaiming the gospel. Now, what are you going to do about it? Now, I want to spend just a moment before we close right there. The word, this call, this proclamation is urgent and it is fundamental because it is a fundamental difference between Christianity and other religions and worldviews. So if you heard nothing of what I was saying this morning, I want you to hear this. There is a fundamental difference between Christianity and and other worldviews and other faiths or other religions. There's a fundamental difference. And it rests on this concept of repent and believe with Christ as the foundation, okay? So let me just take five minutes and tell you what that is. The word repent means to turn. That's what it means. You've heard me say that over and over again. When we hear the word repent... We often think of it as meaning turning from sin and turning to Christ. And that is what it means. You would be right, but I believe that it is more than that. And this is what I have not shared before. It is more than that. In the context of Mark, in all of Scripture, I believe that when Jesus says repent and believe, He means more than just turn from your sin and turn towards me. As we read the statement from Christ, which includes words and phrases such as gospel and the kingdom of God, the terms repent and believe take on a deeper meaning, and this is what I mean. Christ did not say, repent and do better. If he meant simply repent, meaning turn from your sin, if that's all he meant, then he could have just said turn from your sin and do better. He could have said that. It would have been completely appropriate for him to say that. He did not say, repent and behave morally. That would be a good thing as well. He could have said that, but he didn't say that. He said, repent and believe. And I contend that what Christ is telling us to do is more than turn from your bad deeds even though that is part of the sentiment. Instead, Christ is telling us to repent of unbelief. Turn from your unbelief and believe. He's telling us to reject the religions, the worldviews, the pride, and the self-centeredness of the age and believe in Himself. And here's why this is important. Christianity is more than just changing your behavior. Christianity is not a behavior modification worldview. That's not what it is. If you want to change your behavior, go talk to Dr. Phil. Go talk to Oprah. Go talk to somebody else who can help you live your best life now. Christianity is not a behavior modification worldview. It is a faith, it is a commitment, it is a devotion to not something, but to someone. Not just a way of life, but a way of an individual who died for that life. Christianity is more than just doing better. And in fact, it's not about doing anything at all. See, as soon as we say it's about doing something better, we get it all turned around because then we say that it's on us. It's on our works. It's on our actions. That's not what Christianity is. All the way through the four Gospels, it is replete with evidence that you can't do it on your own. It's about Christ. It's about believing that we are sinners, that we are lost. It's believing that God is is good that God loves us. It's believing in what Christ did on the cross was out of love and for the God's glory and for your salvation. And it's about believing that Christ is alive, raised from the dead. Do you get that? It's not about you doing anything. I tell you right now, if you leave this door this morning and if you walk out into your life and if you correct All your bad habits, all your bad habits, you stop cussing. You stop doing drugs or doing alcohol. You start speaking words of affirmation and blessing to everyone. You stop living promiscuously. You only watch G rated Disney movies. You walk out that door today and if you change everything about the way you live and then you get hit by a train, you will still go to hell. Because it's not about what you do. It is about what Christ did. Our belief should lead to better, more Christ-like living. But there is nothing more for us to do. There are no more sacrifices because Jesus Christ has done it all. Or to be very Baptist, Jesus Christ has paid it all. And we simply believe by faith, which is a gift. And so this morning I want to ask you as we close, Do you believe? Do you? Or are you out there trying to improve yourself? By the way, I'm all about self-improvement. I am. But not so that I can be saved by that (coughs) self-improvement. Repent and believe. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word and for the truth of your word. And Lord, I'm so excited about preaching through the gospel of Mark, and I pray that you would bless our time in Mark. Bless us as we continue this morning. If there are unbelievers in here, Lord, I pray that you would convict their hearts and cause them to believe. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.